On page 1146, you'll find our reading for today, which is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the whole thing. For context, this is uh, the Apostle Paul writing for us and to the church in Corinth. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 
But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Thanks, Rowan. Well, today we finish our series on marriage, and, and in a short period, we've covered a lot of ground. We've looked at the what and the why of marriage and the how last week. Uh, and in this last talk, 1 Corinthians 7, it's like a series of bullet points. It's Paul's answers to some matters that the Corinthian church have raised with him and cover a whole range of issues related to marriage, including sex, divorce, remarriage, and singleness. And it's the most extensive and direct chapter in the Bible on marriage. It's written to Christians, Christians who are living in a messy, uh, sinful world, a sex-obsessed world. So think Las Vegas or Amsterdam and you've got Corinth. They said things like, all things are lawful for me. They said things like, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God destroys them both. And they weren't talking about food. They were talking about sex. They believed you could have sex with a prostitute because it didn't matter about the body. Sex is not much different to scratching your back, and so chapter 5, sex with your mother-in-law is okay. Uh, so they had quite extreme views, we might say. But some of them went the other way and became a sort of super spiritual cult of celibacy. So there were some who taught, and we see this in chapter 7, verse 1, that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, and so I think that's what they're saying. That's in quotation marks in um, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. And second half of chapter 7, some believed if, if you hadn't had sex that you weren't really alive. So it's pretty crazy, pretty, pretty weird sort of bunch. Um, some, some, were, some taught... Um, yeah, so I think I've covered the three years. So, so, so pretty weird. It's, 
And yet, roughly, it's what our culture thinks about sex as well. Sex is nothing, do what you like, but sex is everything, and someone who's not having sex is missing out. And at the same time, sex with the same person for year after year after year is a hassle. Um, so Corinth is weird, but so are we. It's pretty similar to us, roughly the same. And Paul repeatedly reminds the Corinthians, leading up to these verses, remember who you are. He doesn't say, do this and you will live. This is not a way to get right with God. Uh, they are already right with God. Remember who you are. Being Christian is not a list of rules. It's not a bunch of bullet points. Uh, he says, remember who you are. And he says in chapter 6, this, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, that is declared not guilty, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. By his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price Therefore, honour God with your body. So Paul is writing to Christians. Um, and, and we are um, in a relationship with Jesus. We're one with him. Present reality, God lives in us. By the Holy Spirit, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are Christian, we'll want to know how to live. In all areas of life, we'll want to please Jesus because he's our king and please him because he's our saviour who loved us first. And hence these questions that the Corinthians have for the apostle in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And firstly, he says, if you are married, it will mean keeping sex on the agenda. Now, sorry for the teenagers amongst us. This is for mum and dad. Um, there's a lot in the Bible about sex, um, particularly in the Apostle Paul, but blame Paul, not me. Okay, verse 2 literally reads, because of sexual immorality, each man his own wife, he is to go on having, and each woman his own husband is to go on having. In other words, he's speaking to those already married to keep on having sex. I remember discovering that my parents were still having sex when I was about... Well, I, can't I, I said year 12 to the early group, but I think it might have been a bit earlier than that. Um, I never thought to question why they had a lock on their door. Um, and being quite shocked, silly me, right? Sex is really important for the ongoing health of a Christian marriage. Sex is not just for having children, which is what I thought. So if sex has fallen off the agenda in your marriage, then this is for you. In some marriages, sex is not possible for medical reasons. In some marriages, there are times when there is necessary refraining from sex in marriage. However, the point here is marriage is for sex. Sex is good. And the purpose of sex is to bind you together, which is why sexual immorality is so harmful. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, regarding sexual immorality, but we, uh, we, we get a picture here of what sex is about. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. 
Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And I'm still trying to understand what that means. But there is something about uh, sex uh, and sexual immorality particularly that is of a, a more damaging or serious nature. Doesn't, it it's not, doesn't make you less Christian, doesn't make, um, mean that you're not a Christian. Um, but it's more harmful. It's against your own body. So think about it. Um, what does that mean? Um, at least it means that sex creates a bond of the closest level and its purpose is to maintain the bond. And one of the earliest signs of a marriage under threat or tension is when there is no sex. You know, my, my minister many years ago, um, used, to, used to ask, I, I believe he still does ask this, um, are you still having regular sex with your wife? He would ask me. He would ask Xiang once or twice, but she found that very disconcerting, so avoided him, I think. Um, now, it's actually a really good question, um, although let's not start asking that of each other. I think... <laughs> We'll just refrain from that. But it's actually a very good question because if we're not having sex with our partner, it may be that there's a big issue, there's a big problem. And so if your sex life has gone into hibernation, let this be an encouragement to pray, to get some help perhaps, to start talking with each other, just gently talking. And this is your homework, right? Um, Sex. If you're married. Second bullet point. Sexuality is not primarily for oneself, but the other. And these, these are listed in your outlines if you're wondering where we're going. So verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields, to it, yield, yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, this is striking. It is countercultural because our culture says, What's in it for me when it comes to sex? It's also counter pre marriage thinking about sex. Before you get married, your thoughts would have been exclusively self centered when it comes to sex. From this passage, the attitude is How can I serve my partner sexually as well as in all things? And after saying that we have a debt to our spouse to provide for her or him sexually, verse 3, he says, verse 4, you don't have authority over them. In this area, you are not the authority your spouse is. You don't own yourself. Your partner owns you. When we marry, we take on a lifetime's responsibility to meet the physical needs of our partner. We give up independence and take on responsibility. And the reason for what Paul says here, or the possibility of it, is because of the cross, the gospel. Jesus said, I did not come to lord it over you, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And we have been loved infinitely by God, the love of Jesus on the cross, and his Holy Spirit's been poured into our hearts. So we can do this too. We can love too. Sex, like the rest of life, is for selflessness. Like my work, 
It is for the Lord. Like my coming to church, it is to be for others before myself. Like I should think about my money, it is, it is so I won't be a burden on others and, and provide for those in need. And so for both men and women, that means learning what our new master needs or wants from our physical bodies. We need to learn what our partner finds most pleasing. Now generally, and these are generalisations, that means for men giving time. Arousal for a woman is not like flicking a light switch. Uh, Men tend to compartmentalise their day, can flick on like a light switch. Uh, This is weird for women to realise this about men and they think their husband, when they learn this, uh, what they like, that they're some sort of freak, but they're actually male. Um, Most men, in my experience, uh, and books on this say so, men are like this and women are very different. And men need to learn to be more thoughtful and allow time for the emotions to start moving. And so a hypothetical, um, being, having a little argument about um, perhaps your wife spending a little bit too much money um, and then spending the afternoon at the surf and then a few, a few hours later, having not said much at all, jumping into bed like you were Tarzan for sex, well, there's a profound miss there, isn't there? Profound misunderstanding about how the woman's mind works. This is not treating your wife as your own body. And just like men need to learn how to fulfil their debt to their wife, so too women need to learn how to fulfil their debt to their husband. And there may be times when you don't feel like sex and your husband does. And vice versa, men there may be time, uh, men and women, there may be times for men when they don't feel like sex but their wife does. And you will, for the sake of the other person, out of love, give time for the emotions to start moving. Paul is not saying that you have to have sex on demand. Paul is not saying that you have to comply with every physical demand made on you. There is such a thing as perverted sex in the Bible. But just like men, women, in fact, each of us are to serve each other selflessly. Paul Barnett puts it like this in his commentary. A man and a woman approaching marriage with a what's-in-it-for-me attitude may be likened to two ticks on a dog, but there's no dog. In such a marriage, each is attempting to consume the other. But from this passage, the attitude is, how can I serve my partner sexually as well as in all things? And please note that this is in the context of marriage, Christian marriage. Our culture worships sex but is clueless about sex. Sex works within a lifelong committed relationship where a man gives himself, uh, becomes one with his wife, for richer, for poorer, for for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. There's a a lifelong um, heart commitment and uh, publicly before God. And it's in that context that, that, that this is being said. And it's in that context that a woman can be confident of the security and safety and care that she needs to give herself fully in return. Only when a woman knows her husband is 100% committed is she able to give herself like this. And so 007 James Bond, for all his boasts, jumping into bed with woman after woman, he's actually a useless lover. Uh, the rock star choosing whoever he wants to sleep with from a crowd of, crowd of screaming girls is a useless lover. 
Uh, casual sex is damaging. Uh, I, from time to time, many of you know I work as a GP, I see men who have erectile dysfunction in their 20s. They have no plumbing or electrical problems. There is no problem with their anatomy. Um, but they've got a distorted view of sex. And it's all about them. Um, in verse 5, Paul uses the word for theft if you deprive your spouse. In Christian marriage, verse 5, do not deprive each other or defraud or, or cheat or steal, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So whatever it is, tiredness, working too hard, workaholism, sport, mates, parents even, do not let it deprive your wife of the debt you owe. Stealing is not Christian. Thirdly, marriage is good. Third bullet point, marriage is good, but when it comes to devotion to the Lord, singleness is even better. Let me read verses 7 to 9 where Paul says there are real benefits um, in staying single. Verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So you see, so what he says there, singleness is a gift. We might not think of it that way. Marriage is a gift also, but singleness is also a gift. And verse 28, um, second half there, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. Or verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live, live in a right way in undivided divided devotion to the Lord. Paul is not saying get married if you absolutely must. He's not saying it's wrong to marry or less spiritual to marry. He says in verse 38, um, whoever marries the version does right. Um, Paul is not anti-marriage, but he is saying that the single person has a greater capacity for devotion to the Lord's work and service of the Lord. Being divided is difficult. Certain kinds of ministry can be a strain on a family. It can be a strain on a marriage. I suspect Paul could never have done what he did if he was married. When you get married, there are genuine spiritual responsibilities that are important that restrict other ministries and services. Service, the, the responsibilities are not negative, they are spiritual. But in fulfilling these responsibilities, I will, by definition, have less time for devotion and service for wider ministries. Time, energy, effort is required to sustain a marriage. The married man is anxious about how to please his wife. Not a bad thing, it's a spiritual thing. But there are real advantages in singleness. 
There's more time to pray. There's more time for relationship outside the family and therefore evangelism. There can be a real depth and quality to relationships at church if you are single. That is much harder if you are married. Some of the most greatly used leaders by God down through history were single. The Apostle Paul for a start, John Stott, Dick Lucas, John Chapman, Mary Andrews, missionary to China, principal of the first principal of Mary Andrews College, Helen Roosevelt, missionary to the Congo, and many others. Um, we can talk about this while Jim's not here. What if Jim was to leave, you know, and we had to choose another minister? And everything was the same, but one was single and one had a family. Maybe we should choose the, sing- the, the man that's single. Um, there are many challenges and difficulties in, in being a minister and being married and having a family. So praise God for Beck and look after her and the kids. Um, now, by the way, if you are single, you will know that this is not automatic if you are single. It, it, there is a challenge here to devote our time, to devote your time. It takes a whole conversion of life to live like this for contentment and responsibility and to serve the Lord like Paul does. So there's a great challenge here as well. We also want to say there are real costs to being single. Worries about security, loneliness at times, a desire for children. And so a very important message for us married people to hear is that our single sisters and brothers are are part of our family. Um, Jesus said, whoever has... House, sorry, whoever has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children for my sake will receive a hundred times in this world and in the, in the world to come and in, in and eternal life. Now, who are the hundred times as much wife, children, mother, father, brothers and sisters? It's us, our church family, to be your family. And there's a challenge for us to look up, to care for you. Now, having settled this, ultimately, at the end of the day, the great wedding to which all of us are heading is the marriage with Jesus and the ultimate relationship that brings purpose and meaning and fruitfulness and direction is not actually the relationship with our husband or wife. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says here makes absolute sense. Final bullet point, avoid separation except in extreme circumstances. And I say this to people who want to know what the Bible says on these issues. And I say this realising also that there are people amongst us in the midst of broken and perhaps unmendable relationships. I urge you, if you are not, to to, to speak to an expert, to a Christian friend, to your minister, Jim, Uh, You need lots of love and care, lots of listening to and practical help. And there are things here that will not cover you. uh, you, We need wisdom to to work out the in-betweens. It doesn't cover every situation, Chapter 7. Hopefully, though, what I say here may guide your decisions. Perhaps you've you've moved beyond this. Um, I want to say we want to help. Now, Jesus said that divorce was not God's intention for us, Matthew 19. But he also allowed it because of hardness of heart. 
We live in the overlap of the ages and it is only at the end of time in the kingdom of God when we won't have hard hearts, where our hearts will be totally cured. And we know those who have the spirit of God, even though we delight to do the will of God, we find the power of flesh continually provoking us to disobedience. And we must be realistic. Some marriages of Christians will fail. And the Apostle Paul gives us some indication of how the teaching of Jesus is to be applied in such cases. Verses 10 to 11 deal with separation. Verses 12 to 16 12 to 16 with divorce. Um, there are situations other than, th- th- sorry, these are situations other than the death of a partner where it is very clear that remarriage is permitted. And um, it's in chapter 7 as well. Um, so verses 10 to 11 deal with separation, verses 12 to 16 with divorce. The message firstly is separation and divorce are to be avoided at all costs. When you read verses 10 to 11, you'll see what I mean. So have a look. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. The picture given here is of a woman leaving her husband and returning to her family or a husband abandoning his wife. Now, Paul recognises that divorce sometimes does take place and sometimes separation is necessary. But if separation does take place, every possible effort is to be made for the partners to come back together. In Paul's day, marriage had unravelled. Um, there was a rabbi, a Rabbi Hillel, who taught that you could divorce, and it was a, an understanding of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, the Old Testament, Rabbi Hillel taught that you could divorce your wife for a badly cooked meal. Divorce had become easy. Marriage had become a farce. Um, Today, marriage is almost like a farce. Um, If you're not happy, generally people will save. If the love is gone, time to move on, right? But as we learnt in talk one, marriage is a covenant. It's not to be entered into lightly. It's a serious matter. It's a gift from God. It's a lifelong promise that we make in front of our closest friends and relatives and before God. Malachi chapter 2, the Bible says God hates divorce. Jesus said in the Gospel, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife? and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not one separate. Now, your husband or wife may have really hurt you, even betrayed you, and it may seem impossible to keep loving them. And I do want to say there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. It may not be possible to reconcile, even though it may be possible to forgive. But what if there is repentance? Reconciliation may be possible. And it does happen. The answer comes in going back to the cross. When did Jesus love me? While I was still his enemy. 
When did Jesus die for me? While I still hated him, Jesus gave his life for me. While I was far off away in a foreign land, Jesus came to seek me. It may appear that love has completely evaporated from your marriage. How could love ever come back into such a marriage? The answer comes in going back to Jesus. So separation is recognised, but every attempt must be made to bring the couple back together. Now, because of hardness of heart, divorce still happens. And I believe Jesus does suggest in Matthew 19 that that if there has been sexual immorality, the innocent party is free to remarry. Some would disagree with that, but I think that's right. Most would, I think, agree with that, um, that, that if there's been sexual immorality, the innocent party is free to remarry. It's permitted, however, it is not required. And I think the gospel forces us to, pushes us in the direction of let's try to work this out. Paul gives another reason for divorce in this chapter. It's not in the Gospels, it's not on Jesus' lips, and hence it's known as the Pauline exception, you know, technical terms that theologians might use, New Testament scholars, the Pauline exception. The case is if someone is married to an unbeliever. And what he says is, if your unbelieving spouse decides to leave, you are not bound, hence I think free to remarry. If you are married to a non-Christian, sorry, if you are married to a non-Christian, if your spouse wants to stay married, then so you should stay married. In such circumstances, in God's eyes, it is a marriage. And I think chapter 7 gives real hope here. There's hope here for the unbelieving spouse an encouragement for the Christian married to a non-Christian, that you staying together may lead to the salvation of your spouse. Verse 16, you may save your husband. But if your unbelieving spouse decides to leave, you are not bound and I think free to remarry. So in conclusion, remember who you are. Paul says you used to be this, you used to be a mess. You used to be unrecognisable to who you are today, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus bought you on the cross. He paid for your sins. The vertical relationship changes my identity. It is the key in all matters of sex, temptation, marriage, singleness, separation and divorce. Getting the vertical will sort out the horizontal. The bedroom, remember who you are. The hotel room when travelling, remember who you are. If I'm single, remember who you are. When things are going really pear-shaped in marriage, Remember who you are. The vertical is the key to restoring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Help us to please you and honour you with our bodies, with our whole lives. Help those who are married to be pure and not given to temptation, to not steal from each other, but to serve and love their wife or husband. 
Help those who are single to consider to consider how to use their gift of singleness for ministry and your kingdom. Help those who are separated or divorced to know of your deep compassion and forgiveness, and if it is still possible, to reconcile with their partner. And ultimately, grant us grace to grow a deeper and richer experience of belong, belonging to you, for you are the ultimate spouse, the one with whom we will enjoy perfect intimacy, bliss and joy forever. Make this good news more than our theology. Make it our doxology, our song, passion and great delight. Until the day our engagement becomes the day of great banqueting, the day we long for more than any other, take us further up and further into relationship with you and free us for loving others as you love us. Amen.